know, I thought about living the life as a nice happy title for this series. But I figured I might as well go for something a little bit more provocative. I think put up or shut up actually communicates the heart of the book of James pretty well. We will find James packed full of pithy admonitions to end our hypocrisy. To live out our faith in very real ways. We will also hear quite a bit about being careful what we say. Someone suggested I change the or to and. To make it put up and shut up. And while there are some who might need to hear that, uh, I didn't go there because ultimately we do have a message to share, preferably after we start living like we believe what we are saying. You'll find the book of James toward the end of your New Testament, but remember that the books of the Bible are not placed in chronological order. In fact, James is one of the earlier books, one of the first books accepted by the church, written sometime before A.D. 62, when this James is believed to have been martyred. Most importantly, James writes as one who knows Jesus, perhaps better than any other writer of Scripture. That may sound like a bold statement, especially since he was not one of the 12 disciples. But you see, this James was actually the sibling of Jesus. This James was the second oldest son of Mary and Joseph, who, as you know, were Jesus' surrogate parents here on earth. While the 12 disciples experienced three years with the Lord, James lived most of his life by Jesus' side. This is quite profound when you really think about it. Did you realize that we have a book in the Bible written by a man who grew up with Jesus? Can you imagine what it would have been like to live in the same house, to be brought up in the same family as Jesus, the Messiah. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be the share a bedroom brother <laughs> of Jesus Christ? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about Jesus' young life. In fact, we have only one scene in between his birth narrative and his first public miracle, <clears throat> at which time he was around 30 years old. However, we do have clues indicating that before his public ministry, Jesus was far from an ordinary child, far from an ordinary adolescent, far from an ordinary young man. He didn't just suddenly become the Jesus Christ we know at age 30. As you know, the angels sang at his birth. Wise men came to give him gifts fit for a king while he was still an infant. Does anyone really think Jesus' life was uneventful from age 2 to age 30. I don't think so. Jesus was always the Son of God. He was always God in the flesh. Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? <laughs> People like Peter and John and the others who we read about in the gospel narratives, they spent three short years with Jesus, but his earthly family knew him from the beginning. We know about his teaching, his miracles from the gospel accounts, but all of that stuff occurred after Jesus had already been an adult for some 12 years. All of that took place after he was 33 or 30 years old. 
Some of you are still in your 20s, and you feel like you've lived quite a bit of life, right? Was Jesus silent until he was 30? Did he never do or say anything interesting? Was he powerless? Was he in a coma or living alone on some deserted island? Not at all. So what about those other 28 years or so? The Bible doesn't tell us about those years. God has his reasons for not disclosing that time. But we can get some clues from two stories that hint at what the younger life of Jesus might have been like. And as we look at this, just remember that James would have been there growing up with him. Let's look at what we have on those earlier years of Jesus while he was still living in the family unit with James. First, we have this scene described by Luke from chapter 2 of his gospel, starting with verse 41. And by the way, I'm going to use the NIV translation. Don't burn me at the stake. It's okay. Some of you still use it too. It's okay. It's just uh, when I did my original study for this many years ago, that's, that's what I was using at the time. I, I mostly use the NASB for my preaching now for what it's worth. Um, you know, they, they all work. Well, maybe not all, but a bunch of them work. <clears throat> it's okay. Uh, but uh, since I originally did my study in that, I'm just going to stick with it. So Luke writes this from chapter 2, verse 41. Every year... Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. <clears throat> Thinking it was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? <laughs> but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Now, you've likely heard this story many times, but don't miss what, he, what it tells us about the earthly life of Jesus. He's 12 years old, and what is he doing? He's teaching theology to the religious leaders. He knows and understands the scripture better than they do. And let me explain that these fellows are Bible scholars of the highest rank. This isn't some backwoods synagogue. This is the Herodian temple. This is Jewish Harvard. These are the experts of experts. These men had spent decades studying scripture to the exclusion of everything else. They probably didn't know how to change the oil in their cars, <laughs> but they knew the Bible. They had the equivalent of multiple PhDs in theology. And here we see this 12-year-old boy, Jesus, teaching them with authority. What was it like to grow up with this kid? What was it like for James and the other siblings? Do you think they were not influenced? Is my daughter not influenced by the deep thinking of my son? Is my son not influenced by the relationship skills of my daughter? How much more would his siblings be influenced growing up with Jesus? The second earliest scene we have of Jesus happened just before the beginning of his public ministry. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but Jesus and his family were at a Jewish wedding. 
where the wine was an important part of the traditional ceremony. Running out of the fruit of the vine would have been at a wedding, uh, at one of our weddings. If that were to happen at a wedding day, you can be sure at least one woman would be freaking out as if it were the end of the world. One or both mothers for sure, maybe the bride, possibly all of them along with the grandmothers. And okay, maybe some of the men would be completely losing it, right? Well, in this case, the woman who is freaking out seems to be Mary. And it's so important to her that she asked Jesus to whip out his magic wand and take care of the situation. Let's just read a little bit of the, of the story from John 2. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. <laughs> and most of you know that Jesus winds up turning water into wine and the day is saved. Now we can glean several different truths from this story, but I only want to point out one thing today, which is this. Mary knows Jesus has supernatural power. She even dismisses his reticence, assuming he'll surely go ahead and zap some wine into existence for his mama. It seems very obvious that she has seen Jesus use his power before, doesn't it? This has been going on for long enough that she isn't even bothered by his supernatural abilities. She doesn't seem to particularly be concerned that the servants might find out about Jesus' hidden power. She basically looks at Jesus like he's one of the X-Men, <laughs> expecting from him superpowers on demand. So Mary says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. See, we know from later on that Jesus often told people to do certain small things, to, to take little steps of faith in order to catalyze his miracles, like when he put the mud on the blind man's eyes and he told him to go uh, rinse in a certain fountain. But, but this is before all that. This is before his public ministry. This is before he had struck out on his own, and yet it seems that Mary's already familiar with Jesus' miracle mode of operations. Almost as if this thing were, he says stuff like, put, waters in these, put water in these jars, take it to the head waiter, you know, dip it out. It, it's, it's like it's already commonplace to her. She knows he's going to give them some little things to do and that they better do whatever he tells you. The story strongly suggests that Jesus acted in miraculous ways long before what most consider his first miracle. It seems to me that Jesus must have at least performed some miracles around his family growing up. See, they were in on his alter ego. They, they, they knew about his secret identity and apparently his power. So if Mary had experienced his miracles enough to be comfortable with him, doesn't it follow that his siblings, and especially the second oldest brother, James, would have experienced them as well? So here we have Jesus, who can do miracles whenever he wishes. Even something as whimsical, or seemingly whimsical, as turning water into wine. And who also happens to be the most brilliant theologian on earth, at least since the age of 12. And this same Jesus has siblings who are just normal Jewish kids. That's just not even fair. Seriously, can you imagine being Jesus' brother or sister? James says, hey, let's go play soccer. Jesus says, just a minute, I'm, I'm spending some time with my dad right now. James says, what do you mean? Dad's in the other room watching football. 
Jesus says, not that dad. My real dad. You know, God. Now, at this point, we need to establish a little bit more about who this James is. The one who wrote the book in the Bible called by his name that we're about to study. Because there are quite a few people named James in the New Testament, and this can become very confusing. Many of you will remember, for instance, that one of the most often mentioned disciples was named James. He was part of Jesus' inner circle of three. Remember Peter, James, and John. We hear about them quite a bit in the gospel accounts, but that James and his brother John were sons of Zebedee, not sons of Mary and Joseph. And we know that uh, this disciple named James, son of Zebedee, John's brother, was one of the first Christian martyrs. We know from Acts 12 that Herod killed him with a sword very shortly after Jesus' resurrection. So this cannot be the James who wrote the biblical book called James some 30 years later. The apostle James had been killed long before this book of James was written. It's also important to note that James, the brother of Jesus who wrote this book called by his name, is the James who became the leader of the Jerusalem church. Peter led it first, but... When we read the book of Acts, we find out that Peter apparently moved on at some point, taking missionary journeys and and such, while James stayed behind, continuing to lead and pastor the church in Jerusalem. Especially after the point in time when Peter was miraculously delivered from prison, it was James, the brother of Jesus, who emerged as the clear leader of the early Christians in Jerusalem. Acts 12, 17, Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet, described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James... And the brothers about this, he said. And then he left for another place. So Peter singles out James as the main one to report to, suggesting his importance, distinguishing him from the other brothers. And also in other places, James, the brother of Christ, is singled out as the leader of the church. For instance, Luke writes, When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. And all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. If we were to read more, we would find out that this scene is a a meeting of two authorities. James is the authority in the Jerusalem church made up mostly of, of Jews who have believed in Christ. And Paul has emerged as the authority when it comes to the churches made up of mostly of Gentiles or non Jews. Paul later even indicated that that while James had become the chief chief pastor of the Jews, he was called to be the chief pastor to the Gentiles. So understand that it is this brother of Jesus and leader of the Jerusalem church, the first church, who is the author of the book of James, that which we're about to study in some depth, depth over the next few months. So understand that it is this brother of Jesus and leader of the Jerusalem church, the first church, who is the author of our book of James that which we're studying. But where did he get that authority? Where, where did he become this person who could write scripture? You know, we, we get that the apostles had that special authority, you know. They, they were specially, you know, sent out by Jesus, that they had that authority to write scripture, inspired scripture, but why did James have that authority? How did, how did he become the leader of, of even them, a uh, leader of the church instead of one of the apostles? Why was he so important? He wasn't one of the twelve. I submit to you that his authority began with the fact that he was the brother of Jesus. Wouldn't that mean something? (laughs) By By the way, this was how the apostles often referred to him. Paul referred to James as the Lord's brother in Galatians 1.19. The Lord's brother. And if you think about it, that's really quite a title, a title of weight and significance. The Lord's brother. 
The fact that James had spent his whole life with Jesus meant a lot in terms of his testimony. It's also very important to notice that the apostles and Jesus' physical family began to be lumped together in the accounts of the early church. Together, the apostles and the Lord's family members, especially James, emerged as the leaders of the first church. And this happened very quickly after the resurrection. For instance, just after Jesus ascended into heaven, which, remember, took place just 40 days after his resurrection, the book of Acts records this scene. It says in verse 12 of chapter 1, Then all these people that were there for the ascension returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers." Now, quickly understand, none of those called James in verse 13 are the James we are talking about today. Two of the twelve disciples were named James, and then the lesser-known Judas is referred to as the son of James to distinguish him from the other Judas who had already betrayed Jesus and killed himself from this, by this time. Confusing, I know, but not unlike the fact that there are several people with the same name in this room this morning, and for that matter, we have at least three guys named James in this church. Let me get to the point. This scene takes place before the Holy Spirit is given at the day of Pentecost. The scene takes place just after Jesus has left the earth, ten days before the birth of the church. These people huddled together are Jesus' closest, most devoted followers, those who had not abandoned him, those who had witnessed his ascension, had, had, uh, had been there, seen the resurrection. They had, been, they had received the great commission from him, in which basically called them to launch and grow the church of Jesus Christ. These are those who will lead the church in its most critical infancy. They would become authorities in the church, and other church plants, and as it expanded, would report back to them and, and, and ask questions and bring issues back to them. And so it's important to make, take note of exactly who is mentioned. Basically, we have the 11 disciples who are named, uh, probably some of their wives, made up some of the women, and then some of the other women disciples almost certainly included Mary and Martha of Bethany, as well as Mary Magdalene, who had been following him all this time. Even though they're not mentioned by name, they, they, unlike, they, they absolutely were there. But notice who else is listed. The earthly family of Jesus. His mother and his brothers, verse 14. And by the way, there's another place that tells us his, his sisters were among these disciples. All indications are that Joseph had died by this time, which would have been fairly normal in terms of life expectancy for men during those days. But the point is that we begin to see the earthly family of Jesus lumped together with the apostles, right there with the apostles as leaders of the church. They would seem to be an equal part of the early church leadership, again, commissioned by Christ himself. And as I've already mentioned Later on, James is singled out from the other brothers of Christ more than once. Paul tells uh, us that J uh, Jesus came to James specifically, went straight to James, like right after the resurrection. One of the first ones Jesus went to, presumably with some, some special revelation. Paul writes, then Christ appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also. Why is James singled out? visited by the risen Christ even before the apostles. Is it possible that James is considered by Paul even possibly more important in some ways than the 12? 
One thing is clear. James is an eyewitness to the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that one thing alone puts him in a very special and important group of early Christian followers. Now, it's true that at some point during the earthly ministry of Jesus, his family, brothers included, seemed to have been confused. They wanted Jesus to behave differently. Much has been made of this. But the fact is that we have very little information on it. When we really look at what Scripture says, it's difficult to build a case that Jesus' family abandoned him at any point. I do not believe that they did. Careful study reveals otherwise. But where does this idea come from that Jesus' family doubted or abandoned him? Really, we just have one verse of Scripture. Let's look at the passage from John chapter 7. The Bible says, But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee, you know, out here in the country, and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. So Jesus' brothers, which would include James, told him he should go do his miracle thing over where the powerful religious leaders were located, over near Jerusalem, which shows a lack of understanding, not a lack of belief. But then John wraps it up with verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. As I said, much has been made of this small statement, but read in context, John must be saying they didn't believe in the way he was doing things at the time. They thought Jesus should reveal his power and establish his identity. Now, obviously, they didn't fully understand who he was, or else they wouldn't be trying to tell him anything. But remember, his 12 disciples said similar things. Right now, the point is that they were actually trying to get him to do more miracles, not disbelieving that he was able. So it certainly isn't that they thought he was a fake, or they didn't believe he had the power to back up his identity. They, they were just tired of, they were tired of taking the heat for him. Wanted him to do more miracles in order to silence his critics. Have you ever been there? Have you ever wanted Jesus to show up and silence his critics? Have you not even asked him to do so? Right, so that doesn't mean you don't believe in Jesus in the sense of not being willing to follow him. It just means you aren't necessarily trusting that he knows what's best in that moment. See, they didn't get it yet that Jesus' ultimate mission was to die on a cross, not to amass a large following. I need some more of these, by the way. Thank you. My supplier right there. They didn't get it that Jesus' ultimate mission was to die on a cross, not to amass a large following. They didn't get it that his goal was not to you know, basically force belief on people by doing constant obvious miracles. But if you believe he was the Messiah, wouldn't that be exactly what you would have wanted? Show these morons who you are, brother. That's what they were saying. They didn't trust the way he was doing things. They didn't believe in his plan. They didn't know yet that he was fully God, not until after the resurrection. But clearly they believed he had the power of God, and I believe they saw him as the Messiah all along. Regardless of their confusion at that point, we do know they came all the way on board after the resurrection. In fact, that's one of the ways we know Jesus really did rise again. The disciples and his family completely changed their tune. They went from following to worshiping. And there was some of that before as well, but they went to a whole new level. 
James actually became one of Jesus' most powerful and vocal supporters after the resurrection. And by the way, James did not present Jesus as some great teacher or philosopher or even as a miracle worker or prophet, but rather as someone co-equal with God, someone to whom he was fully devoted. And that brings us to the opening of the book of James, where this man who grew up with Jesus makes an astounding statement about him. Chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. This is profound. James, who grew up with Jesus, who witnessed Jesus during puberty, doesn't even feel worthy to call himself the brother of Christ anymore, but instead refers to Jesus as a person on par with God. James, the sibling of Jesus, who is a completely monotheistic Jew, places his earthly brother, brother right up there on the level of Yahweh God. James refers to himself as a servant of two, of both of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that if Jesus is not God in the flesh, then James is uttering extreme blasphemy here. If Jesus is not God, then as a Jew, the nature of what James says here demands immediate execution according to Old Testament law. And by the way, as we will see, James still cherishes the Old Testament, as should we. But if Jesus had not embodied the fullness of the deity of God, as Paul put it, or if Jesus had not been fully divine, as Peter put it, then James would have been guilty of the worst kind of blasphemy, even within the opening statement of his book. James says, I am a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, putting God and Christ on the same plane, even though they had grown up in the same house. It's incredible. Not only does James make this scandalous statement, but he writes it down, signs his name to it, and asks for it to be dispersed among the Jews around the known world. All this from his home base in Jerusalem, the very place where they had recently crucified Jesus, where they beheaded John the Baptist, and where they had executed the other James by the sword. These were all killed for exactly the same kinds of statements as this. James, the brother of Jesus, had some serious guts in making this statement of faith in the deity of a man who had been his brother. The Lord Jesus Christ. What does Lord mean in this context? Well, put simply, prior to its attachment to Jesus, the word translated as Lord here had been used as a reference to God. The Lord and the Lord said to Moses, and the angel of the Lord appeared, and the Lord uh, spoke, and it was so. These are references to God, and now James calls Jesus the Lord. In fact, this became one of the first creeds of the early church. Jesus is Lord. They would say it together in worship. Jesus is Lord. A congregational statement of faith confirming the all-sufficient supremacy of Christ as our God, and their God, the Lord Jesus Christ, James calls him. Jesus was his name all along, of course, means basically God saves, but James would have always called him this, so it doesn't prove anything that he calls him Jesus, but then he adds the all-important qualifier, Christ. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word for Messiah. It means the anointed one, the promised one, the prophesied one, the Savior, Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the one and only Son of God. 
So in referring to him as the Lord Jesus Christ, James tells us that he has come to believe that this man who he grew up with, this man who he shared a bathroom with, indeed this man who nursed at his mother's breasts, is actually God in the flesh. Savior of the world, King of the universe, as Isaiah prophesied, mighty God, worthy of our worship and devotion for eternity. This is strong eyewitness testimony of the true identity of Jesus, is it not? I have a question. What would it take for you to believe your brother is God? Seriously, what would it take? Is there any way your brother could trick you into believing he is God to the point that you would stake your life on it? What if he did some miracles? You still wouldn't believe it was God, would you? Maybe he could somehow fake a death and, uh, on a cross and, and seem to come back to life. Would that do it? I'm talking about the brother you grew up with. <laughs> For some of you, this is very personal. But all of us can imagine it. What would it take for you to actually believe that guy is God? Well, it would take a lot more than anything that could be tacked on to the last couple of years of his life, right? It would require something we can't even imagine because we've never seen it in any person we've ever experienced. It would require something consistent, something that was there in his life all along, right? James knew Jesus his whole life and still he believed. What would that take? But there's another word we need to look at here. James says, I am a servant to God and to the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant to Jesus. The English word here doesn't communicate the full intensity of what James is saying. The Greek word is doulos. It means bond slave. A bond slave is a slave by choice. And therefore is completely devoted to his master. He is quite literally the property of his master from that point at which his voluntary commitment is made. And this commitment is for life. Now unlike forced slavery, the bond slave makes a decision to give himself over to someone by his own free will. The bond slave has signed over his life. He has no personal rights from that point forward. He has surrendered to a life of service to that master and no one else. A bond slave trades his freedom, presumably out of pure devotion, and, and he completely surrenders his own will in the process. A bond slave has no more say. He has no more choice. His life is not his own. He is completely and wholeheartedly surrendered to the one he has abandoned himself to in service. This is what it means to be a doulos. And this is how James sees his relationship, not just to God, but to the Lord Jesus Christ. Having once been his brother, James now calls himself the bond slave of Jesus. What must it have been like to grow up with Jesus? You think you might have turned out a little bit differently if Jesus had been your brother? Do you think it might have changed the way things worked in the household of Mary and Joseph with Jesus in the mix? Do you think these people, this family, might have been special? Now, I ask you. Do you have any interest in studying a book written by a man who grew up as the brother of Jesus Christ?
James enjoyed 30 plus years learning from the example and the teachings of Christ himself and how wonderful it is that God inspired him to write a book showing us some of the things he learned in a lifetime with Jesus. Let's look briefly at the last part of this letter's opening. From the end of verse 1, James addresses his letter this way, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Now this has a very literal meaning, but I think it also has a more figurative connotation for us. The literal meaning is found in the Greek word here, which is diaspora. It literally means scattered. But it was, a, it was a label and a term that was used to describe the Jews who lived in small pockets scattered out among the other people in the world. You know, Paul was born in Tarsus, a Greek, a Roman city. He, he, he was one of those that had been scattered and he was born there even though he was a Jew. In fact, ever since Israel was conquered by Assyria and Judah was conquered by Babylon, there had always been a diaspora. There was then and there is now. There have always been Jews scattered around the world, which is an interesting topic by itself. Clearly, God has had a purpose in that. At no other time was this dispersion of the Jews more important than during the first century of the church. Why so important? It was important for the sake of the mission of the gospel. We talk about all these Gentile churches that Paul planted in Asia and Macedonia and, and all around the known world at that time, but where did Paul usually start when he arrived at a new town? He virtually always started sharing the gospel at the local synagogue which wouldn't have been there if there hadn't been a diaspora. He'd go to these Jewish congregations, people who had a foundation in, in the knowledge of God. You know, they knew the Old Testament. They knew the basis. They knew the basics. Usually some of them came with them. They became believers, and they came with them to plant a new church, so they had a strong foundation. Now understand that they were there in these towns because of the diaspora. They had dispersed or scattered from Judea because of persecution. That's the literal diaspora, but I also mentioned there's a more figurative connotation here as well. Did you know the New Testament is clear that we are spiritual Jews ourselves? Uh, we have been grafted into the vine, adopted into the chosen family of God through our faith in Christ. We're children of Abraham, the family of God. I can't spend a whole lot of time explaining that today, but know this, when James addresses his letter to the 12 tribes scattered throughout the nation, also nations, also known as the diaspora, he's writing to you and me as believers. See, we are now adopted children of Abraham. For more on that, check out Galatians 3 or Romans 4 or the entire book of Revelation for that matter. It's so important to understand that by faith, we are now part of the true Israel. Those Jews who rejected Christ are broken off, according to Scripture. We who believe are grafted in. And so we're now part of the whole biblical story of the family of God. The, the story of the Bible is our story. The meta-narrative of the chosen people of God, it's our story. Because we've been adopted as sons and daughters of God by grace through our faith in Jesus Christ. See, James is writing to believers. He's writing to believers dispersed throughout the known world. He is addressing not the masses, not the world, not even unbelieving Jews. He's addressing true believers both Jews and Gentiles who are surrendered to Christ. He's addressing a remnant. He's addressing those who early on were referred to as followers of the way. A persecuted and scattered few. They were not the majority then and we're not the majority now. Make no mistake. The book of James is addressed to the few who really and truly have decided to follow Jesus Christ 
as his bond slaves. Now, is that you? Is it? A bond slave of Christ? That's who this book is written to. That's who the church should be. But is that you? If you're not part of the remnant to whom this book is addressed, you're not going to like it. If you're not more committed, uh, if, you're, if you are more committed to conventional wisdom than you are to Christ, you're, you're going to want to argue with this book. This book is not written to just anyone. This book is written to the diaspora. The diaspora for James are those as committed to Christ as he is. In those days, writing a book like this could get you killed. In fact, it actually did get him killed not long after. But listen, in those days, reading a book like this could get you killed. And, and it still could today in some places around the world. So it shouldn't surprise us that actually following a book like this might be costly. Have you considered the cost of following Jesus? See, there were not so many marginal Christians in those days. You were either in the diaspora, this persecuted few, or you were not. And, and that by your own choice. That's why James does not mince words. Because he isn't trying to be politically correct or seeker sensitive. He probably would have said put up or shut up. <laughs> he isn't trying to convince anyone into the kingdom with this book. That's not his purpose. He, he just wants to make sure those who think they are in are not deluding themselves with a fake ticket that they thought would get them into heaven. For James, there's no halfway when it comes to following Christ. But then, what does he know, right? I mean, he just grew up with Jesus. What if we threw out all of our preconceived ideas about what it means to be a Christian and just got our message from a primary source like James? I'm not saying we should divorce it from the rest of Scripture. That would be bad hermeneutics on my part. But newsflash, many of our ideas about God did not come from the Bible. And so I submit to you that perhaps no writer of Scripture knew Jesus better than James. My goal for this series is that we would be able to let go of some of our convoluted ideas and wishful thinking about the Christ of Christianity and get back to what is clearly revealed in His Word. In James, we're going to get back to the basics. We're going to be challenged because our tendency is always to water down God's expectations. James is going to evaporate some of that water for us with the fire of truth. The real question is this, do you want the truth? Or do you want to believe whatever you want to believe, even if you're painfully ignorant and wrong in those beliefs? Do you want the truth? If you're not honestly sure, I can promise you this, you will be presented with a choice throughout this study. What choice is that? This choice. Will you or will you not follow Jesus Christ? I hope to cover every single verse of the book of James in this series. Let's do this together because I think it's time for every church to put up or shut up. <laughs> and the church is you. So I hope you'll commit yourselves to being here for the teaching of the Word of God going forward. I believe the Lord wants to do some great things in our midst, in our lives during this season together. Now before I close in prayer, let me take you back to something I said earlier. Are you a follower of Jesus? We're saved by grace through faith. I've spent a lot of time on that in our first year. It's through faith. That's the key that opens the door. Faith in Christ. But is your faith in Him also a commitment to follow Him? 
You cannot truly believe in Christ that God came and died on a cross for your sins and not commit to following. Do you have the kind of faith that says, Jesus, <laughs> I'm yours? That's the kind of faith that saves. Have you ever given Christ your life? Have you ever become his bond slave? Maybe you did on some level, and, and, and now you just understand it more. That's good. That, that's, that's spiritual growth. You don't need to be saved again. But if you never really surrendered to Jesus or believed in him in a way that meant he would become your God, your Lord, then you may have never experienced saving faith. It may not have really been faith. And you need to surrender him. You need to surrender to him today in a way that means your life is going to change so that you actually become a bond slave, like James, to offer your life in service to God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why not nail it down today? Would you pray with me? And would you just go to God in your heart? Maybe you just need to recommit. You, know, you just haven't been, he hasn't been your Lord. You just need to recommit. But maybe you're one that really isn't so sure that you ever had saving faith. Maybe you need to nail it down today. Maybe you need to let your faith be the kind of faith that says, because of who you are, Lord, because of what you did, Jesus, for me. Here's my life. Here's my life. Let me be your bond slave. I commit today and forever to follow you. I may not be, per I won't be perfect, but the commitment of my heart right now is a kind of faith that says, be my God. Jesus Christ, be my God. Let me follow you. Let me serve you. Not only you and God can know, but it may be that if you've made that decision today, it may be that today is the day of your salvation. You, you would know. And if that's the case, I hope that you'll let us know so we can talk to you about next steps. Maybe you've never been baptized in such a way that it's you saying to everyone else, count me in, I am going to follow Jesus. This is what I want to do with my life. I want to be a follower of the way. His way. Maybe you've never been baptized in that kind of way. Maybe you need to be baptized again if today is the day of salvation for you. Or maybe you've never been baptized. So please let us know. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we want to be real. We want to be a church that's not just playing games. Help each of us, Lord, to learn what it means to be your bond slave day in and day out to serve you as our God. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.